This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History. And our main report in a little while is of a shipwreck off Mozambique in August of 1585. But we have our beginning of August reports this time, all from the Daily Telegraph, starting in 1881 and August the 4th, as Bradley is ejected from the House of Commons. I don't know how to say his name. It's B-R-A-D. L-A-U-G-H. I'm going to call him <coughs> Bradley. A scene long to be remembered by all who were spectators of it was enacted yesterday at Westminster. Petitions from several places praying that Mr Bradley might be allowed to take his seat, his competence to take the oath having been disputed because of his avowed atheism, were brought by deputations of the full allowable strength. Though an extraordinary exercise of discretion was maintained in admitting persons to the space inside the iron gates, an assemblage numbering 200 or 300 had gathered near the door by which it was expected Mr Bradley would essay his threatened invasion of the house. When, at a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes before twelve o'clock, the police in attendance received some reinforcement, the groans of those assembled outside the railings were loud and deep. Mr Bradley, accompanied by his friend Dr Aveling, came soon afterwards in a handsome cab, the driver whereof, by the pains he had taken to attire himself as for a festival, seemed to have entered heart and soul into the historic gravity and significance of the drama in which he was called upon to play a subordinate part. At the entrance of the house, Mr Bradley, whose advent, of course, was hailed with tumultuous plaudits, was met by Inspector Denning. The inspector informed Mr Bradley that nobody could be allowed to accompany him past the outer threshold. The acknowledged member for Northampton was then allowed to proceed alone up the stone staircase and so till he reached the inner lobby, where, on the mat between the two lodges, he was encountered by the assistant sergeant-at-arms, Mr Erskine, and the messengers of the house. It is a well-known theory that the police have no authority within the walls of the Senate, unless called to render assistance. When, therefore, Mr Bradley, having waited till the Speaker had taken his chair, claimed admission to the House, he was in the first place opposed by the regular officials of that assembly. "'I am here,' said Mr Bradley, "'in accordance with the orders of my constituents, the electors of Northampton, and any person who lays hands upon me will do so at his peril.' He thereupon made an attempt to enter the House, and was checked by the messengers." Their resistance not being effectual, the aid of the police was invoked, and a struggle of a most discreditable nature ensued. Mr Bradley is a powerful man, and he put forth his full strength in a struggle which was manifestly hopeless. But had the force opposed to him been smaller, he might probably have succeeded in his violent effort to break through the barriers and rush into the house. Where Mr Bradley had been somehow pushed or half-carried to the bottom of the stairs, he was in a state of exhaustion painful to see. His black frock coat was much torn, his collar and shirt front disarranged, and he himself in a condition of intense mental excitement and bodily prostration. 
a footnote said he was eventually allowed to take the oath and his seat in 1886, five years later. And yet another four years later, at an another election which took place in, on July the 5th, 1892, for West Ham South, Mr Keir Hardy was elected with a majority of 1,204 for Labour over Major Baines for the Conservatives. And at the opening of Parliament, the report in the Telegraph from the August the 5th says the following. Before the clock travelled on towards the appointed hour, an oft-quoted physical insufficiency of the House of Commons was amply demonstrated. Congestion had made its masterpiece. Members sat on the stairs and in some cases almost on one another and flowers were in great demand alike among the celebrated and the undistinguished. Mr Keir Hardy adopted a red, red rose which had been newly blown in August and toned down any conspicuousness which might attach to the quiet simplicity of that ornamentation by the addition of a brilliant rosette confined in size to the modest proportions of a saucer. It was evidently a great day for Mr Hardy's friends, some of whom drove about the streets fortified by the attractive air we won't go home till morning performed on the cornet, and touchingly demonstrating the true dignity of labour. Into the 20th century, and the 6th of August, 1917, and the Battle of Ypres. And the headline is Ypres Battle in a Bog, from Philip Gibbs, the War Correspondent Headquarters, France. In August, men do not expect to get half-drowned in shell holes, nor to get stuck in the, to the armpits in mud before they reach the first German line. It was not so bad as that everywhere, but exactly that in parts of the line even before the heavy rains came on. It was almost pitch dark when they went forward, and the first thing that happened was that battalions became hopelessly mixed because of the darkness and the nature of the ground, and the second thing, that the barrage went ahead of them, so that they had to struggle behind in the morass, unsupported by its fire, and shot at by the Germans on their flanks. Imagine these men, loaded up with packs, rifles, sandbags and shovels, slipping and falling among the shell pits, which were full of mud, water and wire. Fellows stopped to pull out their comrades, and were dragged in after them. It took them three quarters of an hour to get over two lines of undefended trenches, whole platoons getting bogged in them and slipping back when they tried to climb out. Beyond them was high ground from which German machine gun and rifle fire swept them. It took two and a half hours to get to the second objective in Sanctuary Wood, and the enemy's riflemen, who had been firing at close range, then ran back, as our men say, hopped it. The Menin Road from Ypres runs through the high ground, just here, and it was about here that the hardest time came for our troops because of the fierce machine-gun fire that came from those places and other strong points round about. It was here that many gallant deeds were done by men who had lost their officers and by officers who had lost their men, but collected stragglers and groups from mixed units to get on with the attack. We stay with the 6th of August but come to 1962 and the Telegraph's correspondent from Los Angeles reports on the death of Marilyn Monroe. 
Marilyn Monroe, the actress, was found dead in bed nude at her Mexican-star bungalow in Brentwood, a Los Angeles sub suburb, early today. She was 36. On a bedside table were several medicine bottles, including an empty bottle which had contained the barbiturate nem Nembutal. She was clutching a telephone receiver. An official of the Los Angeles coroner's office said an early investigation indicates suicide. But Miss Monroe's personal doctor, Dr. Ralph Greenson, who with Dr. Hyman Engelberg discovered the body, disputed this theory. The county coroner, Mr. Theodore Kerfey, said later that results of a preliminary postmortem were inconclusive. We do know it was not a natural death, he said, but further tests will have to be made. Detective Sergeant Byron said that Dr. Greenson said the actress called him about 5.15pm. She told him she was having trouble sleeping. The actress had been taking sleeping pills to relieve pains in her head and body, which, in spite of numerous tests, doctors had been unable to diagnose. From the same paper on August the 8th. Coroner's officers in Los Angeles were checking reports today that Marilyn Monroe received a telephone call a few hours before she was found dead from an overdose of barbiturates. Mrs Eunice Murray, her housekeeper, said she heard the telephone ring. Miss Monroe had by then gone to bed. I don't know what time the call came in and I don't know who it was from, said Mrs Murray, but knowing Marilyn as I do, I think that if this call wakened her, she might have taken more sleeping pills. An autopsy showed that her body contained nearly twice as much barbiturate as was necessary to kill her. It is known that she received a telephone call from Joe DiMaggio, Jr., son of her second husband, on Saturday night, but it is not clear if this was the last time she spoke on the telephone. The New York Post reported today that Miss Monroe had made four attempts on her own life. Three were said to have been made by taking overdoses of sleeping pills and the fourth by turning on a gas fire in her apartment. And then from August the 18th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe's death from an overdose of drugs was a probable suicide, a final report by Los Angeles coroner Mr Theodore Kerfey said today. It said the actress had suffered psychiatric disturbance for a long time. Miss Monroe experienced severe fears and frequent depressions. The report continued, in our investigation, we have learned that Miss Monroe had often expressed wishes to give up, to withdraw and even die. On more than one occasion in the past, when disappointed and depressed, she had made a suicide attempt using sedative drugs. On these occasions, she had called for help and had been rescued. From the information collected about the events of the evening of August the 4th, it is our opinion that the same pattern was repeated, except for the rescue. <music> And our last Telegraph report comes from the 7th of August, 1976. Headline, Seven Years for Ex-Minister. And it's a report by Ken Clark. John Stonehouse, MP for Warsaw North and former Labour Party minister, went to prison last night to start a seven-year sentence. He left the dock number one court at the Old Bailey with a wave to his daughter Jane, but branded as a forger, a thief, a liar and the architect of a hugely complex wed of Ford. Mrs Sheila Buckley, his 30-year-old secretary and mistress, went free, weeping and in a state of collapse after being given a two-year suspended sentence. Before Stonehouse was led to the cells, Mr Justice Evely told him, you falsely accused other people of cant, 
hypocrisy and humbug, when you must have known all the time your defence was the embodiment of all those things. To Mrs Buckley, the judge said, I think you were extremely unfortunate to meet this persuasive, deceitful, ambitious man. I know you won't recognise it. Women in your position rarely do. Fortunately for you, I recognise it. As the judge sentenced Stonehouse, Mrs Buckley buried her head in her hands and wept. The jury's verdicts helped to write the epitaph for Stonehouse's attempt to fake his own death by drowning off Florida and start a new life in Australia. On Thursday, the jury decided unanimously that Stonehouse was guilty of uttering a forged application for a passport in the name of Joseph Arthur Markham, stealing the proceeds of a banker's draft for $12,500, obtaining an American Express credit card in the name of Joseph Arthur Markham by forgery, and attempting to enable his wife to obtain from the Royal Insurance Company £30,000 by fabricating evidence from which his death would be presumed. Yesterday, after returning again to reach majority verdicts, the jury decided he was guilty of four other charges of trying, by false pretenses, to enable his wife to attain a total of £95,000 from insurance companies. He was also found guilty of five charges of false pretenses involving bank overdraft facilities of £7,500 and £10,000, $870 in traveller's checks, and two airline tickets, and four charges of stealing cheques for 7500 6981 2112 and £3,188. Stonehouse was sentenced to six years on the theft charges, six years concurrent for obtaining travellers' cheques and airline tickets, six years concurrent on the insurance charges, and five years concurrent on the charges related to overdrafts. He was sentenced to six months concurrent for obtaining a credit card and one year consecutive, making a total of seven years, for the passport application offence. The jury, after failing to reach unanimous verdicts on Thursday, yesterday found Mrs Buckley guilty on the charges relating to four cheques and the banker's draft. Stonehouse and Mrs Buckley were found not guilty by unanimous verdicts of conspiring to defraud creditors of his company, Export Promotion and Consultancy Services. Stonehouse will be expected to resign from the House of Commons and also to leave the Privy Council. After passing sentence, the judge declared Stonehouse and Mrs Buckley bankrupt. And we conclude with John Huygen van Linschurten's report of a shipwreck off Mozambique, in August 1585. In the month of May 1586, letters were brought to the Viceroy and Archbishop at Goa from the captain of Sofala and Mozambique to certify them of the casting away of the Admiral or flagship San Diego that set out of Portugal the year before in the year 1585. She was cast away in this manner. The ship having come, with a good speedy wind and weather, from the Cape of Good Hope to Mozambique, they had passed, as they thought, all dangers, so that they needed not to fear anything. Yet it is good for the master and others to be careful and keep good watch, and not to stand too much upon their own cunning and conceits, as these did, which was the principal cause of their casting away. Between the island of St Lawrence and the firm land in 22.5 degrees south, there are certain shallows called the India, 90 miles from the Mozambique. Those shallows are mostly of clear coral of black, white and green colours, which is very dangerous. 
Therefore, it is good reason they should shun them, and surely the pilots ought to have great care, especially such as are in the Indian ships, because the whole ship and safety thereof lies in their hands, and is only ruled by them, and that by express commandment from the king, so that no man may contrary them. They being thus between the lands, and by all the sailors' judgments hard by the shoals of India, the pilot took the height of the sun and made his account that they were past the shallows, commanding the master to make all the sail he could and freely to sail to Mozambique without any let or stay. And although there were diverse sailors in the ship that likewise had their cards, some to learn, others for their pleasure, as divers officers, the master and the chief boatswain, that said it was better to keep aloof, especially by night, and that it would be good to hold good watch because they found that they had not, as then, passed the shallows. Yet the pilot said the contrary, and would needs show that he only had skill and power to command, as commonly the Portuguese by pride do cast themselves away, because they will allow no man's counsel and be under no man's subjection, especially when they have authority, as it happened to this pilot, that would hear no man speak, nor take any counsel but his own, and therefore commanded that they should do as he appointed them. Whereupon they hoisted all their sails, and sailed in that sort till it was midnight, both with a good wind and fair weather. But the moon not shining, they fell upon the shallow shallows, being of clear white coral, and so sharp that, with the force of wind and water that drove the ship upon them, it cut the ship in two pieces, as if it had been sawn in sunder, so that the keel and the two orlops, that is the deck, lay still upon the ground, and the upper part, being driven somewhat further, at last stuck fast, the mast being also broken. Wherewith you might have heard so great a cry that all the air did sound therewith, for that in the ship, being admiral, there were at least five hundred persons, among the which were thirty women with many Jesuits and friars, so that, as then, there was nothing else to be done but every man to shrift, bidding each other farewell, and asking of all men forgiveness, with weeping and crying, as it may well be thought. The admiral, called Fernando de Benzosa, the master, the pilot, and ten or twelve more, presently entered into the small boat, keeping it with naked rapiers that no more should enter, saying that they would go and see if there were any dry place in the shallows whereon they might work to make a boat of the pieces of the broken ship, therein to sail unto the shore, and so to save their lives. Wherewith they put them that were behind in some small comfort, but not much. But when they had rowed about, and finding no dry place, they durst not return again unto the ship, lest the boat should have been overladen and so drowned, and in the ship they looked for no help. Wherefore, in fine, they concluded to row to land, having about twelve boxes of marmalade, with a pipe of wine and some biscuit, which in haste they had thrown into the boat, which they dealt among them as need required. So commending themselves to God, they rowed forward towards the coast, and after they had been seventeen days upon the sea, with great hunger, thirst, and labour, they fell on the land, where they saved themselves. The rest that stayed in the ship, seeing the boat came not again, it may well be thought what case they were in. At the last, one side of the upper part of the ship, between both the upper decks, where the great boat lay, burst out, and the boat being half burst, began to come forth, but because there was small hope to be had, and few of them had little will to prove masteries, no man laid hand thereon, but every man sate, looking one upon another. At the last, an Italian called Cipri Cyprian Grimaldo rose up, and taking courage unto him, said, Why are we thus abashed? Let us seek to help ourselves, and see if there be any remedy to save our lives. 
Wherewith presently he leapt into the boat, with an instrument in his hand, and began to make it clean, whereat some others began to take courage, and to help him as well as they could, with such things as first came to their hands. So that in the end there leapt, at the least, fourscore and ten persons into it, and many hung by the hands upon the boat, swimming after it. Among the which were some women, but because they would not sink the boat, they were forced to cut off the fingers, hands, and arms of such as held thereon, and let them fall into the sea, and they threw many overboard, being such as had not wherewith to defend themselves. Which done, they set forward, committing themselves to God, with the greatest cry and pitifulest noise that ever was heard, as though heavens and earth had gone together, when they took their leave of such as stayed in the ship, in which manner, having rode certain days, and having but small store of victuals, for that they were so many in the boat that it was ready to sink, it being likewise very leaky and not able to hold out, in the end they agreed among themselves to choose a captain to whom they would obey and do as he commanded, and among the rest they chose a gentleman, a mestizo or half-caste of India, and swore to obey him. He presently commanded to throw some of them overboard, such as at that time had least means of strength to help themselves. Among the which there was a carpenter that had not long before helped to dress the boat, who, seeing that the lot fell upon him, desired them to give him a piece of marmalade and a cup of wine, which when they had done he willingly suffered himself to be thrown overboard in the sea, and so was drowned. There was another of those that in Portugal are called new Christians. He, being allotted to be cast overboard in the sea, had a younger brother in the same boat that suddenly rose up and desired the captain that he would pardon and make free his brother, and let him supply his place, saying, My brother is older, and of better knowledge in the world than I, and therefore more fit to live in the world, and to help my sisters and friends in their need, so that I had rather die for him than to live without him. At which request they let the elder brother loose, and threw the younger at his own request into the sea, who swam at the least six hours after the boat. And although they held up their hands with naked rapiers, willing him that he should not once come to touch the boat, Yet laying hold thereon, and having his hand cut half in two, he would not let go, so in the end they were constrained to take him in again. Both the which brethren I knew, and have been in company with them. In this misery and pain they were twenty days at sea, and in the end got to land, where they found the admiral and those that were in the other boat. Such as stayed in the ship, took some boards, deals, and other pieces of wood, and bound them together, which the Portuguese called jangardas, rafts, every man which they could catch, all hoping to save their lives, but of all those there came but two men safe to shore. They that had been landed out of the boats, having escaped that danger, fell into another, for they had no sooner set foot on shore, but they were spoiled by the inhabitants of that country, called Kafirs, of all their clothes, whereby they endured great hunger and misery, with many other mischiefs, which it would be over-tedious to rehearse. In the end they came to a place where they found a factor of the captains of Safala and Mozambique, and he helped them as he might, and made means to send them unto Mozambique. And from thence they went to India, where I knew many of them, and have often spoken with them. Of those that were come safe to shore, some of them died before they got to Mozambique. So that in all there were about sixty persons that saved themselves. All the rest were drowned, or smothered in the ship, and there never was other news of the ship than as you have heard.
listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Longley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>